Uh, and at this time, Mrs. Lolita McLean is going to read our Advent reading for us, one of our online worshipers, as we light the Advent candle today in worship. Happy Sunday, everyone. My name is Lolita McLean, and today I have the pleasure of reading from Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 through 12. The title of the scripture reading is The Visit of the Wise Men. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw the star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. The candle we are lighting today is called the Light of Worship candle because the text says that they fell down and worshiped him. Let us pray. Father God, thank you for blessing us. Thank you for blessing us with the light of your word. Thank you, Father God, for sending us your son, Jesus. Father God, I pray that you will keep us filled up so that your light may continue to shine forth within us. Father God, let your blessings come upon us as we light the candle of worship. In your name, amen. You can grab a seat and join me as I lead us in prayer. Father, would you stir affections in us toward your greatness in this Advent season? That we would see your holiness, your great provision, your salvation in sending Jesus. God, as we open your word today, God, we ask, would you give us grace and humility to receive and respond today in Christ's name, amen. Amen. Hey, uh, welcome uh, at Medford High for those of you online. Hey, today we're going to be wrapping up Esther um, and being chapters 9 and 10. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn there. 
Um, and before we start reading, I just want to give a heads up on a couple of things. Hey, if you're new with us today, I'm going to be leading um, next to just help you explore how you might take next steps with Redemption Hill. So I'll be meeting in the lobby. So if you're new, hang around afterwards. Hey, if you're watching online and you're like, hey, I wish that I could partake in next, do this for me. Go on the app. On the homepage, you'll see a next option and fill out the form and, and sign up as if you are attending today and I'll follow up with you. Um, and I would love to connect with you and just explore how you can take a next step. And then also I'm super excited to celebrate next Sunday. Um, we're gonna have a different Christmas. Um, and we're gonna be um, doing two services at 4 p.m. and then one at 6 p.m. Sorry, one service at 4 p.m. just to be clear. One service at 6 p.m. They'll also be online. Uh, the 4 p.m. service, we're going to have some enhanced kids elements. Um, both are going to be kid-friendly. Um, but do this, register. You can do this in the app. You can do it right now. Go to the app, register for the service that you're going to attend, and share this with a friend. We've done two services so that there's plenty of space. We're going to be following all recommended protocols to, to make it a safe experience. Um, so even if you're not in person, if you're going to be watching online, share it with a friend. Invite them to watch and join with us. Well, today I'm going to try and tie a bow. You guys get that Christmas? Okay, you guys can laugh with me a little bit. Come on. I'm going to try to tie a bow on Esther and, and wrap it up for us. Last week, let me just catch us up to speed here. Last week we saw how Mordecai was, uh, was elevated to the second in command. He was given the signet ring. And so an edict was shared across the entire empire that on the very day the Jews were to be annihilated, they were able to defend themselves. It says in chapter 8, verse 11, that they could defend their lives, destroy, to kill, to annihilate any force of any people or province that might attack them, and that they could plunder their goods. And the chapter ended with these words, it says that word spread through the empire, and in verse 16, the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. They went from feasting to fasting, and there was a holiday. In fact, the way chapter 8 ends, some have suggested that that was the end of the book. Like, why do we need, even need a chapter 9? I mean, they're celebrating as if victory had already happened. But had it happened yet? No, they had just heard word that they could go defend themselves, but, but the day had not come. And so here's what's happening. Like annihilation, that, that event had not happened. The, the 13th day of Adar had not come. And so what's going on here? Like as we've read through Esther, it's been full of drama. It's been full of um, all kind of suspense and reversals. But when we come to chapter 9, we don't see that. In fact, we get the entire story in the very first verse. In the very first verse. It's kind of like, you know, when you, um, when you DVR something or, you, you know, you, you go and your streaming device and you add it to your library to watch later and, um, and, and you're excited and it's a show or a game and, and as soon as, like, you're sitting down to watch it, like, one of your family or friends already texts you, like, the end result. And you're, like, super, like, I'm the one who, like, when I do that, I'm texting my friends and family saying, hey, I'm not live. Like, don't text me anything. But, but in our story today, it's as if you know the end of the story, and then you're still gonna, you're gonna hit play. The, the suspense has been removed. And so we see that here. I'm gonna read in Esther chapter 9 beginning in verse 1. Verse 1 gives us exactly what happens. It says, now in the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, on the 13th day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped and gained mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. That's it. No suspense. That's what happened, guys. Like the edict went out, and, and what it said actually happened. 
Now, let me just ask you this before we continue reading, because I want us to ponder this because of how the book has been written. Why did the author do this? And I believe it's intentional. I think the author is wanting us to wrestle with this a little bit. And, and here's my answer. The end of the story has never been in question. Like the book of Esther, it's answering this question, how is it that the Jews are still here? It's this story of them facing annihilation. And what about this God who's promised to, to bring an offspring and a king and bless the nations through this people? Like, God, are you still there? Do you see what's happening? The end of the story has never been in question. This shouldn't surprise us. Like going back to Esther 4, and, and here's what I want to try to do today. I'm, I'm trying to, I'm going to kind of take us through the book to, to tie some loose ends together here. And Esther 4, what do we see Mordecai when he's talking to Esther in this, this highlight, in this like key verse in verse 14? He says, Esther, if you keep silent at this time, relief and de deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. Mordecai was confident that the invisibly present God was going to be faithful to do what he said he was going to do. And that's why the author is crafting the story the way he does. God's imprint, if you've been following along throughout, it, explicitly God has been mentioned nowhere. But his imprint is everywhere. He is the one behind every apparent coincidence, and he is faithfully fulfilling his promise and his plan. So why does chapter 9 exist? One, it's to remind us this. God is, God is in control. The end of the story is not in question. But it's also here because we're going to be introduced to the Feast of Purim. And in a lot of ways, the book of Esther is explaining why is it that the Jews celebrate this feast. In, in fact, it's even continued to be celebrated today by Jews. And so we're going to see the inauguration of this feast um, in our chapter today, which is tied to the whole story of Esther and Mordecai. So let's keep reading here in Esther 9, beginning in verse 2. The Word of God says, The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents um, also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. What we have here is a summary of the great reversal from annihilation to victory. And these, these, these give us the general picture of what happened across the entire empire. And what's striking to me is, is the favor that the Jews had. Look back at the text here with me. Here's some things that just jump out to me. It said, um, no one could stand against them. You see that? No one. We continue reading. It says, um, all the officials, the provinces, the satraps, the governors, they were on the Jews' side. I mean, it's like the whole, everything's been turned. You, you have everyone, the king, you've got Haman, and everyone that's, that's against the Jews with that edict of annihilation, and now the tables have been turned, and, and everyone is in the Jews' favor, which I, I think, like, we ought to be asking, like, why is that? Like, how is it that all the, all everyone is on the Jews' side, and there's no doubt, like, that, that God is at work behind the scenes. But it says, fear of them had fallen on all the peoples. And then you see Mordecai. You see Mordecai had continued to rise in power and people feared Mordecai. And as a result, they were able to strike their enemies and carry out what had been told of them. Let's keep reading. Let's pick up here in verse six. Now, what happens in verse six? 
Those verses describe the general story of what happened. What we're going to see now is it's the, the chapter is going to break down and tell us what exactly happened in the city of Susa. And so we're going to look at that first, and then we're going to come back, and, and the chapter is going to tell us what happened across the entire province. So in Susa, verse 6, it says, In Susa, the citadel itself, the, king, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men and also killed Parshadatha and Dalphon and Aspatha and Paratha and Adalia and Eridatha and Parmashata and Arasai and Eridai and Vaisatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamandatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, in Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, if it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow and also to do according to this day's edict. And let the 10 sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa and the 10 sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. So what do we see here about what happened in the city? The victory in Susa, we see they killed 500 men, and then you see that Haman's 10 sons are killed, along with Esther's request. Now, Esther's request kind of carries out a little more detail on how they were king. Now, what does it tell us? Esther requested that the 10 sons be hanged on the gallows. You guys remember the gallows, the one that Haman had created for Mordecai's death. In fact, in, in what happens is Haman is the one who gets put on the gallows. Now we see his 10 sons, a public display of their death. Now, why is this? Like, why does Esther request that? Well, here's why. I think this is connected also to why she request a second day in the city to defend themselves. You see, that anybody a part of a family like Haman, who was carrying out a plan to kill the Jews, um, would have been publicly hung to deter others who may consider following a, 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 a similar conspiracy against either the queen, the Jews, or the kingdom. And so it was a public display. Hey, anybody connected with Haman, this is what's going to happen to you. This is not going to be allowed in this kingdom. But a second day, I was like, why, why is a second day? Why is she requesting that? Well, most likely since Haman was second in command, he's probably got some followers. Like he's the one who made the initial edict that the Jews should be annihilated. And so I think Esther is not overusing her power. I think it's, it's probably a wise move that she's requesting. Hey, there's probably some others here that want to carry out Haman's request. Hey, King Ahasuerus, would you give us another day to defend ourselves in the city? And so it says, as a result, on that second day, an additional 300 men were killed in Susa. And what else? It says here, so in, in the city, they defended themselves on the 13th and the 14th. And then it says in verse 15 that, um, that they laid no hands on the plunder. That's what happened in the city. Let's now move to what happened in the rest of the provinces. We see that in verses 16 and 17. It says, now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar. And on the 14th day, they rested and made that day a day of feasting and gladness. So what happened in the rest of the empire? In the rest of the empire, it says 75,000 were killed throughout the empire. 
Um, they defended themselves on the 13th day and the rest of the empire. And then we, I want to linger here for a second. Have you seen this phrase, this repeated phrase that's come up throughout the past few verses? In verse 10, at the end of verse 10, it says, and they laid no hand on the plunder. At the end of verse 15, it says, they laid no hands on on the plunder. We see it again at the end of verse 16. They laid no hands on the plunder. Here's why I want to linger here. If you go back to the edict in chapter 8, verse 11, look what they were given ability to pursue. It says in verse eight, chapter 8, 11, it says, saying that the king allowed the Jews who in every city to gather, defend their lives, destroy, kill, annihilate any armed force of people or province that might attack them, children, women included, into plunder their goods. Mordecai in this edict says, you're allowed to plunder their goods. But what Mordecai's doing is just paralleling the edict that Haman had sent out in chapter three. Flip back there. Chapter three, verse 13. In chapter three, verse 13, in the edict that Haman sends out, it says, you're, you're allowed to destroy, kill, annihilate all Jews, young and old, women, children, in one day, the 13th of the 12th month, and which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. And so Mordecai is just copying that similar decree, but there's something greater going on in this story. In fact, the story of Esther and Mordecai is a part of a larger story of good and evil and a part of God's plan to accomplish his purpose in the world. Well, what is that story? Well, let me ask you a question. When I preached this sermon back on... Esther chapter two and three, I introduced Haman. And do you remember how Haman was introduced to us? Who remembers? It's Haman the Agagite. Yes, I love it that I, hey, I know online, I couldn't hear you, but I trust you guys got it. It's Haman the Agagite. Why is that significant? Well, I took us on a journey in that sermon back to King Saul. And King Saul um, if you remember in 1 Samuel 15, was told to go and destroy Agag, the king of the Amalekites. Now, what happened in that story? Now, what King Saul does is he goes and he destroys the Amalekites, but he doesn't destroy Agag. And, and God had told him, you were to destroy everything, but King Saul goes and he keeps the best sheep and lamb and oxen and calves. And we find out in 1 Samuel 7, 15, that God says this, he was disappointed in what King Samuel did. And it says he regretted making him king of the Jews. Now, that's a part of a larger story that I took us that day. I took us all the way back to Exodus because the Amalekites were the first ones to attack the Jews on the way, after they crossed the Red Sea, on the way to the promised land. And in Exodus 17, 14, God makes this promise. And he tells Moses, he says, I want you to write this down. He says, write this as a memorial in this book and recite it in the ears of Joshua. I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. So you know what's at stake here? Will God be faithful to what he said he's going to do? Because you know what? Amalek has not been wiped out. We see the Amalekites here in Esther through Haman, the Agagite. And so what's going on here in this reference? They laid no hand on the plunder. They laid no hands on the plunder. They laid no hands on the plunder is this. The Jews of Persia succeeded where Saul failed. And the book of Esther is showing that God is faithful to do what he says he's going to do. He says, Moses, write it down. I'm gonna wipe them out. And what we have in Esther here is that they are the ones who wanna annihilate the Jews and God is completely reversing it and said, no, I'm gonna do what I said I was gonna do. And they completely wipe out those who were trying to destroy them. In fact, one commentator notes that what's going on here is reminding us that there's a bigger struggle than Mordecai and Esther and the Jews and their enemies. It's this larger struggle of good and evil playing out here 
in Susa. Well, hey, let's keep reading here. Let's keep picking up. Verse 17, it says this. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar. And on the 14th day, they rested and made the day of feasting and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who lived in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast purr, that is, cast lots to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term pure. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and of what they had faced in this matter and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail, they would keep these two days according to what was written and at, and at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the co a commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihel, and Mordecai the Jew gave full written authority confirming the second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews, to 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed season as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fast and their lamenting. The command of Queen Esther confirmed these practices of Purim and it was recorded in writing. What we see here, I know that was a lot, is the feast of Purim being inaugurated. These verses show how the spontaneous celebrations in verses 16 through 19 give way properly to an organized annual festival. In fact, one of the purposes of this book is to explain why did you celebrate Purim? In other words, the author is saying, hey guys, see, th this is the reason why the Jews observe this feast today. And so let's dig in here and, and ask a few questions about, about what we learn about the feast of Purim. But, Purim. but let me just first highlight, notice how Mordecai records, it says here in verse 20, he recorded all of these events that happened, and he sent letters to all the Jews. So that's the first of all. Then we see here in verse 29, Queen Esther with Mordecai then give full written authority confirming a second letter. Um, and I just wanna highlight, it's significant that they're writing this down. Because God told Moses back in Exodus, like, hey, write this down, I'm gonna wipe... I'm gonna wipe out the Amalekites now. Like, it's being made explicit. Nobody's gonna forget. We're, I want you to write it down. Write it down so this will be, so that the commemoration of this will be carried out from every future generation. But what do we find out about the Feast of Purim? First, we see here is we see its origin, like why it was named. We look at verse 23. Um, Sorry, verse 26. It says, therefore, they called these days Purim after 
the term pure. That word purim is the plural word for the word pure, which it says there means lots. That is casting lots. And so back in the Haman story, in chapter three, Haman was the one casting pure, casting lots to determine the 13th day of Adar. It's that very same term now that is used to describe this feast that they're observing. And and there's irony in the name. While Haman is the one casting lots, the point is, is that God is the one who determines the role and the lot of his people. And that's what they were commemorating. It was to remind them, even though Canaan's, uh, Haman's rolling, God is in complete control. Second we see here is the reason for the two different days in celebrating Purim. Did you pick up on that? What day do they celebrate in the city? Look at verse 18. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and the 14th day to defend themselves and rested on the 15th day. So in the city, it was celebrated on the 15th day. But where, when was it celebrated in the rural areas? Well, we find that out in verse 17. In seven, the, the latter part of verse 17, it says, on the 13th day was when they defended themselves, and on the 14th day, they rested. So here's what's happening. And it is explaining, like, why do they spend all this time, like, talking about this festival? Well, in the Jewish community, it was being se- celebrated on separate days. And so it's as if the author sees it significant to clarify, like, when should we celebrate? Or why is it celebrated on two separate days? This is explaining that for us. And so look at verse 30 in chapter 9. In verse 30, it says, letters were sent to all the Jews, to all the provinces, in words of, of what? Peace and truth. This is further confirming here that the hope was that there would be peace and unity around the true and correct way of celebrating Purim. But l- let me ask you this. In looking at the day that they celebrated this feast, notice this, they didn't celebrate it on the day that they actually went to war. In the city, they went to war on the 13th and 14th. It's not those days they celebrated. They celebrated on the 15th. In the rural villages, they went to, they defended themselves on the 13th and celebrated on the 14th. What's the point of that? Here's what I think's going on. I also want to highlight that it mentions that there's rest and relief. Like what they were celebrating wasn't that the actual battle, but it was that there was rest, that there was relief. Do you, did you see those words come up a few times? You see um, in verse 16, and they got relief. You see it in verse 17, they rested. Verse 18, they rested from, they rested. You see it in verse 22, they got relief from their enemies. These similar words here, rest and relief, that's the day that they were celebrating, the following day, which means this celebration wasn't like a malicious, hey, look at all those 75,000 Jews we just wiped out. That's not the point. It's not, hey, we just hung all of Haman's sons. It's, we've got rest and relief. We weren't annihilated. The focus isn't on the destruction, but on the salvation that they experienced. And so today, Jews still observe the Feast of Purim, most celebrated on Adar 14, though some do celebrate it on Adar 15. In fact, in 2021, it's going to be observed on February 25th and 26th. Here's a little sidebar. Right now, Jews are in the middle of Hanukkah. A few centuries later, why was that? That was to celebrate um, in, in the midst of another enemy, Antiochus Epiphanes, who was trying to wipe them out and how God provided for them. But we also see this. We don't just find out about the name of Purim and why it was celebrated on different days. We see actually what was going on. And you know, it's fitting 
that Esther ends with some feasting. I mean, think about it. Esther 1, where did we start? King Ahasuerus is throwing feast that the queen rejects, which paves the way for Esther. Then we come to Esther 5 and 7, and she's throwing a banquet or a feast and inviting the king and Haman to. And then now we've come full circle, and we've, we've gone from the Jews fasting and mourning in sackcloth and ashes to feasting and gladness in a holiday. What does it describe? Purimaz? You see it here in the text. It was a day for gladness, for feasting and a holiday. We see that in verses 18 and 19. And in verse 22, it further describes it. And it says that, uh, that they would send gifts of food to one another, including gifts to the poor. Everyone was to share in the feasting, even the poor. Um, you can find, this is a similar practice. Go read Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 9 and 12 for the Feast of Weeks. You're going to see a similar practice there. Um, tradition informs us. Um, I've even talked to some in our church that have practiced it, that the entire book of Esther is read during the Feast of Purim, and that there'll be noisemakers that'll be used as this reading is happening, and people will cheer at Mordecai's name, and then they will hiss and boo at Haman's name. How about that? We just go back and do a quick reading and uh, we can act that out. Hey, kids, you tell your parents this week, hey, we want to go back and reread Esther with some cheering and some booing and some hissing. And you can determine which one that you want to do. But you know, as I read through this, many of you guys know, I, I did, a, I did my, um, my PhD work in the area of the Sabbath. It's hard for me not to hear echoes here of the Sabbath. When I hear these words, rest and relief, or even just thinking about the feast in the, in the Old Testament, a lot of the feasts were retrospective and prospective. Like retrospective, it was to remember something. And prospective, it was to remind you and give you hope for the days ahead. For, for instance, in the Sabbath, it, it was to remind you that God is God. He's Lord of the Sabbath. He's the one who brings ultimate rest. He's the one who created and then rested and invited all of creation to enjoy his rest. And everything was perfect as it was meant to be. But it also pointed ahead as a reminder that one day God is going to bring rest. I think in a similar way, that's what's going on here with Purim. They celebrated it retrospectively to never forget we were on the verge of annihilation and God was faithful to save us. And it gives us hope looking forward. We may face, you may face some very dark days ahead, but you can have confidence looking at this that God is faithful to fulfill and carry out and, and preserve his people. But as we think of the Feast of Purim, in some ways, it's like the Feast of the Old Testament, and in other ways, it's different. It's different in this sense. Mordecai's not a prophet. Mordecai's not a king. In the, in the, priest, in the, in the feast that are given in the rest of the Old Testament, it's God giving this to Moses in the law. This is arising from the spontaneous worship and response of the people. It wasn't given by God, but it was the people seeing God's faithfulness and them wanting to celebrate and remember God's work in their life. Well, let's keep reading. Let's wrap up. Wrap up. Chapter 10, verses 1 and 3, it says, King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea and all the acts of his power and might and the full account of the, of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced. Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai, the Jew, was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all of his people. We see one final reversal here. Under Mordecai's reign, the Jews experienced 
the complete opposite of what happened under Haman's reign. What do we see here? It says Mordecai sought the welfare of his people and he spoke peace to all of his people. It's hard not to hear echoes here. You know, Mordecai's not the king. He's second in command. But it's hard not to finish Esther and to almost think, you know what? Mordecai, is, he's almost like a king. And what should the true king do? The true king should be one who was going to care about the welfare, welfare, welfare of his people. He's going to seek the welfare of his people. We hear echoes of that, and it gives us great hope. As we wrap up today, here's what I want to do. I want to give you four just kind of nuggets and truths. As I step back, we've covered this entire book that, that I want you to walk away with. And the first one is this. What we see in Esther is that God's word assures the survival of, of his people. God's word assures the survival of his people. God made a covenant with his people. And at stake here is God going to be faithful to carry out his covenant. And we see the truth is, yes, like on the verge of annihilation, God provides. God, he, he steps up. He does what he says he was going to do. Karen Jobs, you heard us mention her. She's written a great commentary. She, she quotes a Jewish scholar. So not a, not a Christian, a Jewish scholar who's reflecting on Esther. And he says this. He says, this great deliverance, which was achieved without miracles, was the reason the Jewish people finally came to rest their faith on the Torah, the word of God, rather than miraculous displays of his power. The book of Esther implies that what God's word is decreed will happen even without miracles. The book of Esther, you don't see God explicit anywhere. Like where are the miracles? Where's the parting of the Red Sea? Where's the burning bush? Like God is invisibly present behind all of it. But the point is this, you can trust God's word. You can stake your life on it. He's faithful. It's calling us, just like the Jews, to not just trust God when you clearly see him everywhere in your life, but in your darkest days to trust that God is faithful. He will do exactly what he says he's going to do. You and I, we're not facing an enemy like Haman and an attack against the empire, but you and I are in a spiritual war. Ephesians says this, that our warfare is not with flesh and blood, but with the spiritual forces of evil. And in Ephesians 6, verse 10, this is what Paul writes. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. How do we do that? How do we stand firm in the face of the enemy? He continues, put on the whole armor of God that we may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. You will not stand against the schemes of the devil unless you are strong in the Lord, unless the armor of God is what you're just clothing yourself with. And I don't have time to unpack that. That's another sermon. But he concludes that whole armor in verse 17. He says, and taking up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. Listen to this connection. The spirit, the sword of the spirit, the word of God and prayer. The word of God is the spirit inspired word of God. When we read it, when we meditate on it, when we believe it, it crushes the enemy. The enemy cannot stand when the word of God ignites faith in us and by the power of the spirit, we believe it and step out in obedience. Amen? This is why in Romans 8, how do we live? We live by the power of the Spirit. Those, what, what does it look like to live in the power of the Spirit? Those who set their minds on the Spirit. That's how we do it. The way those who walk in the power of the Spirit, they set their minds on the things of the Spirit. One of my prayers as we look forward to 2021 is that we would be a church increasingly 
that says there's a war and that I need to clothe myself with the armor of God. Particularly, I need to be taking up the sword of the spirit, praying at all times, on all occasions, that God would take his word and bring great transformation through us in 2021. And so I want you to consider three challenges. You're gonna hear me come back to these over the next couple of weeks. Consider three challenges for 2021. The first one is this, that you would say, I'm gonna read at least a chapter a day, five days a week in God's word. Read one chapter, five days a week in God's word. Second challenge, that you would spend an intentional time praying outside of mealtimes or community group or Sunday morning, seeking God's face five days a week. And then the third challenge, every day, write down at least one nugget, one time, from one thing from your time with God. You see, you see Mordecai, he's writing it down. We want to remember. And here's why I wanted you to consider these, because we want God's word to bring great transformation in 2021. So he, here's what I want you to do. You're going to get an email from me today. Or you could pull up your app. Right now, if you were to pull up the app, you would see on the homepage it says RHC survey. Here's what I've done. I've created a survey. It's completely anonymous. It'll take you less than five minutes, but you would bless me if you would complete that. Here's why I'm doing that. It's, it's on Bible reading and in prayer. It's because I, as a pastor, want to learn how I can help you take steps this year. It is not meant to induce guilt. Know that. It's just informative. I want to see, hey, where are we as a church? Where are the growth opportunities as a church? And notice this. It's not just about checking a box. It's about, I, I want us taking the sword and I want us slaying the lies of the enemy that you are gonna face every day. We need God's word. We need to memorize it. We need to meditate on it. We need it to be flowing through all that we do. And we'll be following that up with a, with a church-wide plan that's gonna start January the 4th um, on, on how's a church. We're gonna just be calling us to take steps, reading God's word and praying together. Second truth I want us to see. The Feast of Purim points to a greater feast to come. Why did Mordecai want them to keep this feast for years to come? He didn't want them to forget. One commentator even says this, Purim is meant to be a shadow of the cross. You know, there was a feast to come. Jesus, before the cross, he, he sits down and observes the Passover with his disciples this is the Passover feast, which now we celebrate as the Lord's Supper right before one of the darkest days, right? Jesus is hanging on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It looks like the enemy's won. Nobody knows what's going on. Jesus, though, has absolute trust. God, nevertheless, not my will, your will be done. Into your hands, I commit my spirit Jesus was conquering sin and death to disarm the enemies and set us free. That day becomes the day we receive rest and relief from our enemies. The reason we can be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might is because Jesus has already won the victory. And when we are in Christ, that victory is ours. And so why do we celebrate communion? Because I need to be, be reminded, you need to be reminded how the story ends. And guess what? God is in control. God wins. He's going to keep all of his promises. So every time we observe the Lord's Supper, we're saying, God, we know the end of the story. God, give me faith today. I need to be reminded. It's my feast of Purim to look to you. And you know what? There's going to even be a greater feast at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Go read about that in Revelation 19. The third thing, the reversals in Esther point to a greater reversal in the gospel. The reversals in Esther point to a greater reversal in the gospel. Think about it. If Haman succeeds, the Jewish people are wiped out. God's promise is not fulfilled. There's no king. There's no Jesus. There's no gospel. There's no church. But through a series of amazing reversals, the Jews go from annihilation to salvation, and God, who is the God of reversals, does a great reversal in the gospel. I wish I could read Luke 1. I can't. I've been meditating on the Mary Magnificat and her song. 
She starts out, my soul magnifies the Lord and rejoices in God, my Savior. This is the reversal of the gospel. God takes the humble and he elevates and exalts. Jesus says this, he humbled himself and became and, 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 um, and took on human form. Like the whole virgin birth, the whole incarnation is the reversal. Like that Jesus would become a man just like you and I. And that in the gospel, when you humble yourself, you get exalted. You may lose the entire world, but you gain everything. That is the hope of the gospel. The, the end is never in question. And that's what I want to wrap up with. And that's kind of my main point today. Even when God is invisible, victory is certain for those who are in Christ. Even when God is invisible, victory is certain for those who are in Christ. You know what? We don't always understand what God is doing. You may be sitting here today and you're like, God is completely invisible in my life. It's one of the darkest days of my life. We don't always know why certain things happen. I don't know your exact story and the things you're wrestling through when you lay in bed at night and you're just asking God why. But this is what I do know. The certainty of the survival of the Jews points to a greater certainty that we have in Jesus. The death and resurrection of Jesus have secured for us a victory. All that remains is us to reap the fruit of the victory. It's kind of like the edict in chapter 8 that was sent out, and they're already celebrating even though the war hadn't come yet. That, that's the similar place we're in. We've been given news of victory. Now let's go reap the benefits. And God has given us the power of the Spirit to do that. So just like there was no suspense in our story today, there's no suspense in how your story's gonna end. Hear that, believe that today. God will be victorious. Every enemy's gonna be defeated. Every injustice will be made right. God's kingdom will come in its fullness. There will be a new heaven, a new earth, peace, justice, flourishing, and God will keep every single one of his promises. That's what Esther's about. That's what God wants us to rest our life on. We must fight the fight of faith. Faith is the conviction of things unseen. And that's what Esther's been about. God, I don't see you. You're not mentioned anywhere. Yes, he's everywhere. And you know what? He's everywhere in your life right now. And I'm pleading with you, believe it. Even when you don't see it, believe it. Because this, we're gonna sing a song that says this. We're gonna see a victory. And we're gonna say, my God will never fail. I'm pleading with you as you sing it to believe that today. My God will never fail. Let's pray. Father, God, we thank you for Esther. God, I need this. I need to be reminded your word assures victory. God, I need faith today. I need, I need to set my mind on the things of the spirit. I need to, to crush the lies of the world and Satan and, and the sin in me. God, I need to, I need to hear these words. We're going to see a victory. God, fix our eyes on the cross. God, help us walk in such confidence that the Jews had when they faced to defend their enemies. God, we thank you for this truth. We pray in Christ's name.